The Athletic. Here's Mares. Foden. On it goes to Alvarez! Manchester City are heading to Istanbul and they've absolutely ripped Real Madrid apart. Hello, welcome. Thanks for choosing to listen today to the Athletic Football Tactics podcast. On today's episode, some tactical reflections on the Champions League semi-finals. Over two legs, Manchester City beating Real Madrid 5-1 and Inter beating AC Milan 3-0. And an initial look at the imminent arrival of Maurizio Pochettino at Chelsea. A big name for a big job. What does a good Poch team look like and how might he go about achieving that? To help me, Ali Maxwell, with the topics, I've got Michael Cox, I've got Liam Thumb and Mark Carey from The Athletic. We'll start by looking back at Wednesday night's action at the Etihad. Man City 4, Real Madrid 0. Bernardo Silva at the double, Akanji and Alvarez on the score sheet. Wow, what a performance. Michael, what did you make of this? It was almost too dominant, wasn't it? It felt like the game was a foregone conclusion within about 10 minutes. You just couldn't see Real working their way back into the game, even though it took City a while to score the first and then a while to actually put the game or the tie to bed. It just felt like one-way traffic. Real Madrid, I thought, were contributed to the dominance of City with, I must say, a pretty pretty awful performance. Um, obviously, when there's a big result like this, you've got to weigh up how much it was. The winners being good and the losers being bad. But I thought, I mean, even compared to the way Arsenal played at the Etihad, I thought that was City being brilliant. I thought this was a bit 50-50. I thought Real had no tactical plan and completely played into City's hands. That feels significant, particularly in the in the wider context of the, the very top level of the European game. Real Madrid having won four of the last nine and being known as the team for this part of this tournament, getting absolutely blitzed. Yeah, City were nothing short of incredible. It's, it's interesting because they've sort of had this um, way of doing things at home compared to away games in, in the Champions League. They've, they've won one Champions League away game all season, which was severe on match day one, um, which I still see as potentially an interesting point looking at the final that they've drawn games away. Okay, admittedly, the, the buy and return leg, they looked like they'd already wrapped up the tie, but you know they went to Leipzig and were cautious. They were fairly cautious in the first leg. They've not necessarily been outplayed in those games, but they've not blown teams away. Then they've gone and won uh, 4-0, 3-0, 7-0 um, in games at the Etihad. And of course, have set a record or extended their record now um, of being you know the best sort of European side ever from an English perspective. Um, so how they then approach the final off the back of that, I'm not sure, but yeah, it's, it's sort of literally just filed this one under the collection of City's fantastic European performances uh, at home this season I mean from a numbers perspective as well to add to the the simple dominance we've spoken before about match momentum being a sort of a better indicator of dominance in a team beyond XG and things like that and there's multiple models that you can look at but I've got Opta's one in front of me and it shows such clear dominance from City across the whole game really but especially in that first half when you think about it as the semi-final of a Champions League where you have to win Mm. against the holders um, and the holders who knocked you out last year as well. It's just the, the feat was incredible. I think it's a good time to go through some of the incredible stats. Uh, Opta providing some goodness on Twitter this morning. Uh, I could not quite believe this. The first pass that Real Madrid completed in Manchester City's half came in the 25th minute and it was the kickoff <laughs> that they took after Banana Silva's opening goal. Uh, Michael, how rare is it to see this level of dominance in a a Champions League semi-final second leg? 
Yeah, very rare, especially because you don't think of Real Madrid as a team that are kind of easily rattled. I mean, sometimes they are outplayed. I think they are often out-tacticked. I think they were in this game. But they did just look, they went into their shell. They really struggled to get hold of the ball. And City played their part in that, of course, with very good pressing height of the pitch. But yeah, it was, it was I thought, a really, a really tame performance from Real Madrid. They just... I, I don't think they did the basics. I don't think they adjusted well to the, the situation in the game. It took Ancelotti about, I think it was half an hour before he changed system. And I think a lot of other managers would have changed system after five or 10 minutes of that. I, I know we'll go into more tactics, but I just want to piggyback with some more uh, stats from Opta that they released last night. It was Ruben Diaz was the only Manchester City outfielder not to have a shot goal in the first half. Madrid only had one as an entire team at that point. Um, and City averaged 70% plus possession in the first half of the Champions League game for the first time in their history. And it came against Real Madrid in a semi-final. Amazing, really, um, in terms of the way the team's set up. And just starting with City, Michael, you wrote a big piece about Pep Guardiola and the Pep overthinking it in the Champions League narrative. Uh, it, it is something that gets trotted out a lot, both before games as a concern and occasionally when they've not uh, achieved success in this competition as a stick to beat him with. Having looked at his whole career overall and really done something of a deep dive into this how much do you buy into that narrative being true or completely false uh, and was there anything here that involved Pep overthinking it at all I think it's a bit of a mixed bag when you look at all his Champions League exits I mean to start with it's a bit of a flawed exercise because I was just looking at the exits and I wasn't looking at the times when his right. tactics had worked really well um I think there's been a couple of occasions. The one I would say more than anything else is the defeat in 2020 against Lyon, which was a first, uh, sorry, it was a single leg game because it was just after uh, the initial COVID break. And to be fair, City did create good chances, but they just went really defensive and really obsessed with preventing counterattacks, which they then didn't. And they didn't have any of their good players on the pitch. I don't, I personally don't look at that 2021 final against Chelsea and think that was overthinking it. He left Rodri out, he played Gundogan. I think that kind of makes sense for the, made sense for the tactical picture of the game. But no, this was, I mean, there was no overthinking it in terms of structure. This was, I mean, it's a very unusual structure to play that we've become accustomed to. But you said in the piece, you weren't expecting overthinking by which you meant a load of tweaks from recent weeks because of the way that they've been playing and I guess the personnel involved now, particularly Holland up front. Yeah, exactly. I mean, a lot of the, the, tactical surprises have been in the final third over the years and with Holland, I think there's less room to do that but no they played their first choice system and personnel in the first leg and the same thing in the second leg I think there was a different approach you know the first leg was really really cautious I actually found it frustratingly cautious although I think you have to give them credit for for the way that they carried it out whereas the second leg they were kind of going for the jugular They've peaked really well tactically, I think, at this point in the season. You think earlier on this campaign, Bernardo, who was the match winner on, on the night, played defensive midfield, as has Rico Lewis. Now we've seen John Stones playing that role. So he's cycled through players into that different sort of shape. Um, and of course, they haven't been playing this this back three style or with the midfield box um, the entire season. You go back to Anfield when they sort of first tried this approach. Uh, Pep's wingbacks were Cancelo and Foden on that day. And you look at the sort of the, the personality he plays with now of, in the Premier League, it's been uh, Grealish and Maris as, as the wingers, and obviously Maris has dropped out for Bernardo to come in, um, and he's been adjusting and sort of rotating his way through the centre-backs, I think, to, to find a nice balance. Nathan Ake is probably in with a shout for one of the players of the season, and obviously didn't feature in the uh, in the second leg against, against Madrid. So I think this is a really smart way of doing it over a season to 
adjust and make tweaks uh, constantly. And there were points, I think, sort of three, four months ago where we were having discussions and saying, you know, does Pep sort of know how to balance out this team? We felt that with Haaland up top to need to adjust defensively for goals they were conceding and, and difficulties keeping possession. Of course, they lost at Spurs when they played uh, Haaland and Alvarez sort of uh, in a strike partnership. So uh, on that regard, I think that's the smartest way to do it, that throughout a season you adjust, you make tweaks. Um, and when it comes to it now, you've got this refined system where he almost doesn't need to think because he's got, uh, as Michael was saying, sort of his key players to put in those key roles. And then that gives you so much scope to, at least from a pressing perspective, they tweaked it completely when you compare it to their press against Leipzig or Bayern. Uh, and that's where you then make your adjustments, not with players, not with sort of the system, but uh, you know, real sort of match specific tweaks. Do you think those tweaks were designed to just try and find a winning formula in the early stage of the season where there were a few kind of teething issues or in order to kind of peak at the right time because City have just, as they often do, just peak towards the end of the season, they're just relentless. Which one do you think it was? Was it kind of born out of necessity or was it? In, do you think it was intentional? No, I think more born out of necessity. Um I think it's a case of bringing in a really specific but really, really talented player and having to move away from a previous system that, that you sort of had. Pep seems very sort of prepared to um, evolve and change things. And even now, um, sort of with specific players, he doesn't seem wedded to a certain player having to stay. It's okay, a player can come in, a player can come out. Um, and I'll be honest, I'd be surprised if at the start of next season, this is the same thing that we're seeing now. He might, again, we'll touch onto it later, but this might not even be the way that he plays within the final. So I think that's been a real sort of strength. And again, it is a big outcome bias thing of, you know, he said it after, it might have been the Leipzig game where he's like, you know, if I make the changes and we win, everyone says I'm a genius. If, if we lose and get knocked out, it's how Pep's overthought it. So he can be quite funny in his press conferences, but I feel like there's a real sort of grain of truth to what he said in that regard. Going forward, obviously the four goals scored spread out across the game really, but also two big chances for Haaland uh, even before City opened the scoring. Michael, what was it about City's attacking play that Real Madrid just couldn't handle? I thought the main issue was the, the complete lack of interest almost in closing down Rodri. I, I thought that was the, the thing I just couldn't work out. So when City were playing out from the back, Modric was pressing really high. He wasn't even just marking Rodri, he was going in front of him trying to block the passing lane. But as soon as City played it past them, Modric dropped back almost in front of his defence. And City could just circulate the ball through Rodri again and again and again. Now, I just thought Benzema had to drop onto him. It didn't have to be for the whole game because I know that would offer them, you know, minimal attacking threat. But they had to do something, surely, to kind of stem the tide. And it took until half an hour where Ancelotti changed system and moved Rodrigo inside onto Rodri. So he clearly saw that was the issue. And I think they improved a little bit after that. But I think by that stage, it was probably a foregone conclusion. But I just don't really understand how, how you wouldn't have more of a plan. I, I just, I, I really don't understand what they were doing in that situation. I mean, Rodri's such an important player to City. I just can't imagine any of the other big clubs in Europe would have gone to City and just not had a plan for Rodri or decided, yeah, we'll let him have the ball. But yeah, there was no way. City just had a, a free player just to switch the play every time. I, I just don't understand that. No, it's quite incredible to watch. Uh, I thought Real was sort of three and three in terms of their midfield and their their front three got pulled really, really narrow, really, really quickly, and just then had no chance really at stopping that those passes going wide. Walker kept positioning behind Vinicius Junior and sort of receiving passes there. But I was amazed that with Valverde uh, and Cruz sort of man marking uh, Gundogan and, and De Bruyne that. They basically became a back six at times because City would push those two number 10s on and Real were just so, so deep. And part of the issue was they just didn't have the bodies there forward to you know sort of have those midfielders running forward when they did get the ball. And City's counter-press was really, really good, but didn't feel like it had to be too perfect. That Real really let an out ball if they couldn't hit Benzema early uh, or try and release Vinicius, that they just ran out of options very quickly. 
And City were incredible in the sense that they were quite relentless with a final ball or a shot, I think. There were a few efforts from distance, a few sort of early crosses into the box that they weren't really too inclined to sort of um, overplay. It wasn't, we just need to keep the ball in the final third to retain possession. It was, no, we, we want chances and things didn't quite click for the first 15, 20 minutes, but they didn't seem bothered by that. I think, you know, Guardiola looked like he was doing a lot of clapping and sort of, you know, thumbs up, lots of gesturing. Didn't look panicked. It was like, we're having so many attacks here. It's only a matter of time before Courtois doesn't make an incredible save or uh, until one goal does go in. So... I think it worked perfectly in that regard and still sort of left Walker free to man Mark Vinicius Jr., which obviously um, when you eliminate his pace through, I think the first time, just 30 minutes in, when he finally gets slotted through, Walker just overtakes him and catches up. And when you can't beat someone with a pace like that and that's your super strength, you, you just run out of solutions in the game. And obviously Walker did that same thing against Mbappe in, in the World Cup. So it's a really useful you know, role to have um, and a player to have. And of course, someone that hasn't been a key part of City's Champions League um, run so far, but it's played a really, really key role in these fixtures. In terms of some of the goals, can someone tell me what happened to Real Madrid's shape out of possession for the 2-0 goal? Uh, this one was scored by Bernardo Silva, a header in the end after a Gundogan shot was blocked. It, it looking back, just looks absolutely bizarre and really um, demonstrative of a team who had started with a shape that wasn't working and then possibly just lost the run of themselves a little bit. Camavinga in particular, if you just watch him, it's very hard to, to really work out what's happening from, from my point of view anyway. I think bizarre is the exact word to use. I think it sort of represented how much Madrid were defending and playing as individuals rather than a team. And I think it was from Real Madrid's possession themselves. I think it was one of the first times that Camavinga had inverted from fullback into trying to sort of get into more central areas. And then... City regained the ball and Camavinga tracked Grealish to the well, Madrid's right-hand side over to, to City's left. And as he released it, as Grealish released it back to, I think it was a Kanji, Camavinga thought that his job was done and was just like, okay, I can go and wander back into either the central area or maybe even back into my position. And just not realising that, I think Kevin De Bruyne had pinned Carvajal at, at right back so that there was just, Grealish was clearly going to get the ball back and he just had free reign to just drive forward and then you commit bodies and then there's going to be knock-on effect and a domino effect to, for Gundogan to have the effort for, for Silva to have, okay, it was a well-executed header. But it was so, I felt it was very naive from Camavinga, but quite naive from Madrid as a team to not know, like pass the player on and actually help him out and communicate with each other. It just, it, it's not something you really see too much kind of within football, but at the highest level in the semi-final of a Champions League, bizarre was, was the word to use. I've got two things to add in that one, I thought De Bruyne was fantastic. He was, I looked at his touch map and he was absolutely everywhere. He was popping up on the right, sort of receiving passes from Walker, making these wide triangles with Bernardo um, and then sort of roaming over to the left when City had more organised possession and, you know, making combinations there. But as you are mentioning about Akanji, I think it just shows how settled City got in possession in the, in the rare half that for both the first two goals, the first one in the build-up has John Stones, you know, driving in into the final third, almost to the byline, incredibly and, and really, really effective there, which ends up having the domino effect that De Bruyne is then spare on the edge. When he then gets pressed, it makes Bernardo spare and he ends up scoring the goal. And on this occasion, it's a Kanji underlapping Grealish. And I feel like the instantaneous reaction to that is, is seeing that sort of a reflection of desire or these players are so into the game that they want to make those runs. But just tactically of... City being so organised and so well structured, having this sort of, you know, this five players back behind the ball that Guardiola is prepared to let his outside centre backs make these underlapping runs between fullback and centre back, which is overloading a Real back four that's already overloaded by City's front five. 
you you just run out of players to defend everyone. There's going to be at least a spare player somewhere. And I thought City were fantastic at when they were in the final third, just circulating the ball really quickly. Players took touches on the ball. They didn't look rushed, but it was control and it was zip with the pass. And Real just couldn't couldn't match that for speed. And then holes start to open up. And I think when you go through half an hour, 40 minutes of that, as we've so often seen City do, they kill teams with a million passes because people get tired, people start to switch off. People just get a bit bored and fed up of defending and suddenly then that player becomes, you know, open, becomes free and dominoes just start to fall and, and City were fantastic in, in that regard. I thought the first goal as well showed a lot of problems in, in the way Real Madrid played and there's a bit of hindsight bias here, I guess, but I was surprised they went with Camavinga at left back. I know he's done well there on the whole, but I think for a test like this, they could have been a bit more cautious. They could have kept Rudiger in the side, who I thought did really well in the first game. They could have moved... Uh, Alaba to left back, they could have moved Kamavinga into central midfield and moved Cruz higher and Modric to the right. And that means Valverde would have played instead of Rodrigo on the right. But I think that would have been the extra midfielder to make up the numbers in the centre. I really like Tony Kroos. He's been one of my favourite players to watch over the last decade or so. And I kind of wish he had been converted into more of this kind of player full time, this kind of Andrea Pirlo in front of the defence player. But having not really played there that much for most of his career, I don't think he's great defensively. I think he gets dragged around quite easily. And, you know, against Kevin De Bruyne, he's probably the most difficult player to, to track, I think, in terms of those runs. And I thought there was complete miscommunication there between Kamavinga and Cruz for the first goal. Kamavinga gets dragged too high, which is exactly what you expect as a, you know, central midfielder playing left back. And they just got opened up a bit too easily down that flank, I think. So... Yeah, like I say, maybe a bit of hindsight bias, but I think I would have gone more defensive and, and played the cent played, you know, extra proper centre back, and then you end up with Valverde in midfield making up the numbers and probably pushing on to Rodri, which is pretty much how they ended up playing after half an hour anyway. Certainly, we could talk about Man City and their performances recently all day. I'm sure we will still have more to say about them, uh, particularly previewing the final uh, set piece. Uh, improvements this season and some of the, the star men on the night even outside of the goal scorers Grealish and Stones and Gundogan uh, we've spoken a lot about City and quite rightly given their performances over the last few weeks and no doubt uh, we will once again before the season is over they'll play Inter in the final of the Champions League they beat AC Milan 3-0 on aggregate and I've been really interested in uh, the top table of Italian football and, and how it's impacted European football this season. We saw Napoli light up Serie A from the very start of the campaign. They also were excellent in the Champions League group stage. And then, more or less with the title having been secured, AC Milan trounced them in the league and beat Napoli in the Champions League quarterfinal. Now Inter have beaten them 3-0 to reach the final, while also winning five league games in a row and beating Juve in the Coppa Italia semi-final to reach the final. So although a poor league campaign for them, they're finishing strong. Uh, Italian football back in Europe's major club final. It's Inter's first since 2010. And you know, 2-0 up from the first leg. Some would say it's a dangerous scoreline, Michael, but it didn't necessarily feel like it. How did you find the second leg? I thought it was a terrible game, to be honest. I, I just don't think you had the quality you expect of a Champions League semi-final. And to a certain extent, that's to Inter's credit because they came into this game. They knew if there were no goals in the game or if there was one goal in the game, then they'd go through to the final. And I think on top of that, they actually were the better side. I thought they offered more an attack. I thought Latoro and Martinez in particular was really, really good. I think the enforced injury change in midfield actually helped them a little bit because they brought on Brozovic, who I've got to say, I think he's a brilliant player. Um, and he just helped control the midfield and it meant Chalinoglu went a bit higher. What in particular do you like about Brozovic? 
I think he's good positionally without the ball and I think he just uses the ball really calmly, really efficiently, always understands the game plan. Good player for Croatia, always a good player for Inter as well. But yeah, I just thought it was, more than anything, it was just really stop-start. It was just so scrappy. Neither side could get into a rhythm. I don't think Milan had that much of an attacking plan. And I have to say... I've spent years saying how much I love him. I thought Giroud was terrible in these games. I thought his touch was all over the place. They needed they needed a big performance from him to hold up the ball, to bring in others. It was obviously Al wasn't fully fit, but I think it was probably worth the gamble. Did have that one good run down the outside. But they needed Giroud to, you know, you're up against three centre-backs. It's a difficult task, but you need a little bit more from your centre-forward. I, I, again... I just didn't really see. After the first 10 or 20 minutes, you just didn't get a sense this was going to be an event, as in a, a close game. You know, both these games really were, were done well before the end, which is a bit of a shame because I associate Champions League semi-finals with like knife edge. You know, last couple of minutes, something big happens. But, you know, both these sides, Inter and City, were completely dominant really over the two legs. Mm. I mean, on the fact that it was quite a fragmented game, I looked into it uh, myself and for the both respective sides, it was the highest total fouls for them both across the game in the Champions League. But then I saw another thing from Opta. There were 37 fouls committed uh, in the game, which was the most across any Champions League game this season. So it did show just how stop-started it really was. So yeah, your, your eye test is reflected in the numbers there, Michael. But I think as much as anything, it just played into Inter's hands to sort of have a 2-0 scoreline, just stay in the deep block that they've got so well refined in a 3-5-2 and then they could then play a bit more on the counter-attack and AC Milan as we've spoken about before on this podcast AC Milan's strength is in counter-attacking transitional situations and if they're not able to implement that style then because of the scoreline then it it completely played into Inter's hands and a number to sort of re reflect that is that they only managed one direct attack in the second leg we spoke about it before as a proxy of counter-attacking um, and that was their second lowest um, in the Champions League campaign uh, this season the other one the lowest being um, they had none against Spurs uh, in their 1-0 win there so they just weren't able to fulfil the the style that they like to, to normally do and it showed Liam you were at the first leg the 2-0 win for Inter having watched that and then this second leg did it all kind of go as expected yeah kind of which is a a real strength of theirs, I think. Um, there's a remarkable similarity to the Super Cup win uh, in January where Inter beat Milan 3-0 uh, there in terms of one just having two early goals sort of inside 15 minutes uh, and sort of the manner in which the, the goals came about as well and that um, Inter, as we said, can really defend off of this base where they can drop the wing-backs down. Um, but they're really sort of adaptive in sort of how they then attack with it. They sort of rotate into more of a 4-3-3 where Denzel Dumfries, the right wing back, really push forward. Effectively made a front three with um, Lataro and with Dzeko, who I think actually get misprofiled quite a lot as one is literally a big guy and one's a smaller guy. But Lataro's back-to-goal game is excellent. His physicality is really, really good. Um, thing as well there's a lot to be said for the fact that he's captain of the team particularly a team as, as big as Inter uh, and Dzeko's ability to I think run the channels and be an outlet with sort of these diagonal runs in transition is really valuable and really really useful and because of that I think Mark and I have been speaking about this that we were just amazed that Milan didn't try and match them up um, they ended up with Tomori sort of being one-on-one -on -one against Dzeko which is just a complete mismatch um, and it was I think it was Kier in the first leg uh, up against the Tauro uh, and he switched to um, um, Malik Chiao in the, in the second leg and that didn't seem to go particularly well either having in January when they played them, uh, the San Siro, gone to a back five then. So I was sort of like, why didn't they try that again? Um, it felt like a bitter recipe for disaster. Um, and yet Inter have been phenomenal in the Cups again this season. They're in another uh, Italian Cup final, um, which will of course happen before the, the Champions League. So there's a 
probability or a good chance here that uh, they can be on for a treble. And ironically, it's the it's the Jose Mourinho Manchester United style treble of uh, you know all the cups. Um, so yeah, they could they could do the three. They're in incredible form at the moment. Earlier, you said you had the sense that Man City are peaking at the perfect time tactically. Uh, get the same sense from this Inter team under Simone and Zaghi. Yeah, to a degree. Um, I think their style suits knockout football a lot more because it seems to be more predicated on um, not losing games and always winning games and sort of blowing teams away. But he's been rotating recently in the league from what I've seen. Um, but the the forward line, I mean, Romelu Lukaku, the fact that he is able to be an impact sub for this team and is now sort of fully fit. He spoke at length to CBS after, um, after the second leg and it was a fantastic interview where he just looked delighted with the fact that he's scoring goals again regularly now. You know, they scored six, I think, against uh, Hellas Verona and have been scoring two or three a game. Um, so the attack is just completely firing. They've got multiple different sources of goals. They've got three different number nines that are all frequent scorers in very different ways. Um, they've got central midfielders. I particularly love watching Nicola Barea. Um, his sort of runs from deep are absolutely fantastic. And when you have that many different avenues that can score goals, Federico De Marco, a left wing back, pops up with goals too. There's just so many ways that you know you can break down different teams, different defences, and when players get marked out of the game or if players are you know having a bad day, they just will score goals at some point. I think that Lukaku interview that you mentioned on CBS, I was going to mention myself in terms of just how much he said that at the start of the season, they kind of mixed things up a little bit, but then struggled and then reverted back to type and they just played to their strengths essentially. And so I've got the quote here. We basically said, at the start of the season, yeah, we tried to, to play the high press, which is not our biggest strength. The team won the, the league a couple of years ago, playing counter-attacking football. Last year, we tried a mix of flair with still a bit of counter-attack. And this year, we tried to change it in the first six months. And we conceded a lot of goals in the first few games. So yeah, playing to their strengths now of, of having that consistency. They're unbeaten for, for quite some time now. And, and things have clearly started to, to click. And they've just got a really well-defined way of playing. Who was your man of the match for Inter in this game, Michael? Martinez, I think, was brilliant. Jekko um, got some of the plaudits in the first game, and rightly so, but I thought Martinez was excellent at everything. He was running in behind, he was coming short to link. He was, you know, there's two strikers up there, but he was playing a kind of all-round number nine role. Yeah, I'm, I'm always a little bit on the fence with him, Martinez. I, sometimes in big games, I mean, it wasn't great at the World Cup, obviously fell out of the team, but yeah, excellent here and deservedly the match winner. I love the celebrations as well after he scored. I think that was that was class. Some good shot stopping from both goalkeepers in this game, um, but Onana in goal for Inter looks absolutely imperious at the moment. There's, you, you get it rarely, but it's so exciting when you do with goalkeepers where they, in, in a difficult position to like really shine, you sometimes see a goalkeeper that just looks bigger than everyone else, look that he can get to places that other keepers can't get to. And on the ball as well is confidence. It's, it's incredible to watch, actually. Yeah, he's had a massive year for, for club and country, I suppose. Um, I, yeah, looked into his numbers. Seven goals prevented uh, this season, the competition, which is more than any other goalkeeper. Um, in the Champions which, League alone? In the Champions League alone. Wow. And granted, he's, you know, he's played more games than a lot of his rivals who have been knocked out since. But it's still, that's, that is quite remarkable. In what, 12 games? Yeah, and that Mad. exactly, yeah, and we we spoke we speak a lot about these sorts of models, which we say that eventually that will revert regress to the mean, etc. But in cup competitions, it doesn't matter. We spoke about this at length, haven't we? Before, in terms of overperformance, that's okay. Well, in Courtois, in the last yeah. three years, has been as big a reason for Real winning finals than than probably anyone else. Exactly. Yeah, I, I think some specific uh, saves that come to mind. I think was crucial against Porto. I think it was a double save against um, Porto and. 
maybe in the second leg, um, which he's he's kept into within the within the tie within the game um, on multiple occasions this season, and uh, and yeah, that game in both semi both semi final ties were uh, were no different. So that's five clean sheets uh, for Inter in six of their sort of knockout games, which people will look at their sort of route to, to the final and say, okay, it's only quote unquote sort of Porto, uh, Benfica and, and Milan. But you forget this is a team that got out of a group um, containing Bayern Munich and Barcelona. So I think you've earned the right to have a slightly more straightforward route to the final. Um, and, and yeah, um, Inzaghi said as much in terms of after the, the semi-final, he said, we were unlucky with who we got in the groups and we're going to be unlucky with who we get in the final because we've had a really hard start and a really hard end to it um, and maybe a slightly easier bit in the middle. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So plenty to appreciate for both Inter and Man City, their performances in these Champions League semifinals and also general form over the last couple of months. It should be a fascinating Champions League final. The reason we haven't uh, put the teams together and discussed that tactically just yet is because uh, we're going to put together a proper preview ahead of the final in a few weeks' time. Uh, As for today, we're going to move on to some highly topical Premier League managerial news. Maurizio Pochettino to Chelsea looks all but confirmed and could be by the time you are listening. Um, Poch to Chelsea. It's a big one. It's an incredibly underperforming football club right now for many reasons, many of which we've discussed on this podcast and and others that would have been discussed more off-field stuff, no doubt on uh, other athletic podcasts. Uh, Michael, as for Poch, just update me, remind me, his last job at PSG... Clearly didn't go to plan. Could say that for a lot of PSG's recent managers. Um, What was the scenario there? What happened with Poch at PSG? Just don't think the club suited him. Don't think the side suited him. He wants to work with young players who are hungry and he had a lot of superstars who were, were probably not. And yeah, I just don't think it was, I almost don't think it was relevant in terms of his style of football. He had to completely compromise everything he wanted to do and he enjoyed it really. So um yeah, it, it's quite funny. His his job at PSG and his job at Tottenham, I think, completely polar opposites in, in terms of the stature of the club, in terms of achievements. You know, Tottenham, he, I think most people would agree he did a really good job, but didn't win a trophy, which some people, you know, mocked him for. PSG, your kind of trophies are inevitable. You don't have to do a good job to win a trophy. So they're complete polar opposites. But I think it's, it's pretty obvious that uh, the Tottenham Pochettino is the, the one he wants to be. Before we get on to to how things might look at Chelsea, let's just remind ourselves what Spurs looked like at their best under Poch, making the Champions League final, most notably in 2019. In terms of an attacking style in possession ideas, Michael, how did it look? 
Well, I think the in-possession ideas and the attacking style took a while to come. For me, it was, uh, he took over, he really implemented the pressing very quickly. That was their default game plan. I think probably him, as much as anyone, Klopp in a slightly different way. But when he came to English football with Southampton, he was about pressing, about pressing first and foremost. The attacking ideas came later. And I think were... I mean, it depended on the, the development of individuals. You know, Kane into a top-class player, Son, when he found his feet in English football. Obviously, Christian Eriksen was a really good player as well. Um, obviously, they dominate possession. I think of it about a lot forward running. Mm-hmm. I think running off Kane. Kane was the main man, but they always got players in behind him. Most obviously, Deli Alley. But yeah, I think that the thing that he'll try and impose first is a high defensive line, winning the ball back quickly. And I think after PSG, where he struggled to implement that because the attackers were not those kind of players, I think there might be a reaction and he'll almost go completely extreme to kind of, you know, reassert what he's all about. So I think, yeah, the first thing we'll see from Chelsea is very, very aggressive press. And do you think that that style at Spurs stands the test of time, if you like, and and tactical trends as they change in the Premier League? Yeah, this is a good question. I remember writing an article about Pochettino when he first went to Southampton and it felt quite new for a manager to arrive at that time and be all about pressing. I don't think there'd be anyone. You know, Klopp wasn't there yet, for example. And it felt quite different to everything else in the Premier League at that time. And now pretty much, well, 10 years on from that, you know, I've done this article about what he'll be like at Chelsea. And he almost feels quite generic now. I mean, yeah, he's, he likes pressing. He likes possession. He likes working with young players. Like, it's not as specific as it once was. Um, and that's not to say it doesn't stand the test of time. But I just think him and, and other managers with similar beliefs have been so well popular and so successful that, uh, yeah, there's a lot of managers around like him now. So when writing about what he'll do with this Chelsea side, I, you know, I don't think it's going to be a anything completely radical. It's going to be a lot of young players who are ready to play in the style he wants to play. Okay, well, it feels like quite a good fit on that front. Just remind me what happened in the 2019-20 season. Following on from the Champions League final, uh, Poch was sacked basically within six months with the team in, in 14th. Yeah, I think everyone was a bit knackered, probably mentally as much as physically. I think probably the Champions League final. One, that was a good time to go. Two, I think a club like Spurs, I think you really struggle to get over a Champions League final defeat because I think you know it's not going to come around every couple of years. And the player that, uh, you know, was really exciting, who seemed set to kind of reset the way they play was Ndombele. He just didn't work out at all. And uh, yeah, I think it was difficult for them to kind of get over that. And it's interesting you say he's a good fit for Chelsea because... I think there's a bit of a difference here. I think he's a really good fit for the side, as in the players, you know, young, hungry, you know, adaptable. But I don't know if he's a good fit for the club because I think they're two very different things. I think Chelsea is a club. The managers that I would say would be comparable, those who've come maybe relatively young with a real set philosophy of playing a certain way. And by that, I'm thinking Vyas Boas, Sarri, who admittedly was a bit older, but felt like a newcomer, and Graham Potter. They haven't really gone down well with fans. I think Chelsea fans have quite liked the fact Chelsea have always been a little bit unfashionable. Neutrals haven't really liked them. They're kind of like party poopers and they've kind of got the job done and won trophies. And Pochettino feels like the complete opposite to that. So I think there's a contrast between him being a great fit for the side, maybe not necessarily a great fit for the club. 
I think that's both a, a really interesting point that you raise and also quite funny to to listen to, what are we, two months out from doing a big double-headed podcast about the state of management and, and <laughs> appointing managers and what you look for because, you know, we discussed the concept of the word good fit or bad fit. Uh, and as you've just laid out, Michael, it is very difficult to be definitively one or the other or to predict what it could be. In, in this sense, you're saying good fit, in one sense, bad fit. In another sense, it's uh, it, it's such a, an interesting thing to to try and break down and discuss before a ball has even been kicked. Uh, in terms of the, the Chelsea squad, I mean, so many players in the Chelsea squad that it feels like a difficult squad to sort of pause and, and, and look at uh, as an overview. Uh, on a basic level, I'm interested to know how you think he'll set up basic shape uh, defensively, four at the back or a three at the back system, which Chelsea has seen a lot over the last few years. It's a really hard question to answer, um, but I'll, I'll do my best. Please do. There's a lot of good, young, talented centre-backs there, which would naturally make more sense to play sort of a back three with Levi Colwell will come back from loan and I think is more than ready to, to start on that Chelsea team and is obviously left-footed as well. Um, Wesley Fofana in there, uh, Ben Marbadi Ashil again, there's sort of real talent and that's before you consider Thiago Silva, um, Kaladu Koulibaly, who I think Chelsea fans now seem to not like and want to get rid of, but I think it still looks really talented and um, is, is more than at the level. Um, and Trevor Shalaba, who might also apparently be on his way out, which when Mark and I basically tried to do a piece, um, or did do a piece, sorry, but it took, took a lot of I think just brain power and um, patience to try and basically work out who from Chelsea's current squad might you actually keep going into next season on the premise that they've got too many players, they need to start cutting down, but certain areas are very overly bloated. You're talking about a massive squad, but there's only one real high quality defensive midfielder in there, and that's Enzo Fernandez, um, someone who was signed as well recently. So you're looking at a squad that's got sort of too many of these winger number 10 style players. And we're still saying no real striker or no out-and-out number nine that is going to score goals at a level that Chelsea fans deem to sort of be um, sufficient. So I think it's hard to look at Pochettino's previous clubs to say there's a style that he needs to incorporate because, as, as Michael was saying, this is a very different, very specific job. Um, but I would like to see a, a back three with the talent they've got there. I think that would make sense given the players they've got. But then we give it two months, they might have sold a load of them or sort of loaned them out, I think. If anyone's going to make even more additions and sales this window, it's going to be Chelsea. I mean... I don't think the reason to play three at the back is because you... I'm not suggesting that isn't necessarily what you're saying, but I don't think that to play three at the back is because you have so many central defenders to try and fit them in, into the, the team as much as possible. I mean, across his whole managerial career, Pochettino has been known to, to play three at the back on occasion, but more often it, it's been four at the back. And I mean, Michael's got the, the piece coming out soon. You'll know more than me, Michael, but it feels like the typically he likes the centre-backs to kind of go quite wide and then have the defensive midfielder drop in to almost build up with a back three but not necessarily with three central defence if that makes sense yeah I mean that was what he did really well at Tottenham with um, Eric Dyer playing half midfield half defence but it's quite interesting because that was kind of standard at the time you saw a lot of centre midfielders doing that you don't really see it anymore you know with the central midfielder dropping in and the fullbacks pushing on because I think managers are so scared of the transitions and so obviously what we've seen you know as we've spoken about a lot on this podcast this season is one of the defenders tucking inside and one of the fullbacks going into the midfield. So it'd be interesting to see whether he still wants to to play the same way. I quite fancy he might go with a three, actually. I just think they've got a lot of good centre-backs. I think Chilwell and James are both more suited to playing wing-back than, than full-back. But we'll have to wait and see. I don't think formation is a massive deal for Pochettino. He quite rarely used 4-3-3 at Tottenham, but then used it all the time at PSG just because he had different players. So 
Yeah, I think that he can use a variety of uh, formations. I think as well with the back three being conscious of the strength of James and Chilwell have been really, really key for Chelsea, but I don't think either they fit enough enough of the time for you to build a whole system around them. Um, I had a look at their sort of availability and, and that is obviously a, a real skill in itself. Chilwell's played 42% of possible league minutes since he arrived in 2020 and only in one of the seasons has he played more than 75%, which is what we would deem as a, as a core player. Um, and James is at 50% of possible minutes in that time and he's not played more than 75% uh, in a single season. So... I just don't think it's realistic. I think you have to be honest. Um, and as well, because of the, the way that both play, I think James in particular, doing a lot of high-intensity running, a lot of straight-line running up and down the pitch, your, your job is to cover the ground basically of two wire players because you're playing as a sort of a, um, a lone wing-back. So inevitably, you're going to get injured. You're doing stuff that's going to put yourself at risk physically. Um, they're going to need to find ways around that. I know there's like Lewis Hall that can play left wing-back, but to instantly say back three because it's a super strength, sure, but you're going to need at least a plan B, if not a plan C. Enzo Fernandez. Argentine number six will be managed now by an Argentine manager in Pochettino. And Michael Enzo signed and went straight into the starting eleven and has stayed there. It was, you know, there was no time to get his feet under the table or to bed in. Uh, the club just hasn't been in a position to do anything like that this season. But is it right to, to be potentially quite excited about Enzo come August with a bit of time to, to work under Poch and a manager who, uh, in theory at least, should should really enjoy what he has to offer? Yeah, I think so. He's got the mixture of aggression and, and quality on the ball. I think every manager would like him, but yeah, Pochettino probably will, especially. Um, so yeah, I think he's probably the going to be the symbol of that midfield now, probably getting towards the end of the, the Kante days and the Kovacic days and Loftus-Cheek is still knocking around. But yeah, Enzo Fernandez, I think, is going to be the uh, the poster boy, maybe not necessarily the captain, but almost the technical leader in the in the side. There is one midfield player, Mark, that you feel like this could be quite good news for. Yeah, I think it could be good news for for Conor Gallagher. Um, I think he is he fits the the profile of you know someone Michael mentioned before in terms of a young young enough in his career that he can be shaped into the the style that that Pochettino wants to. Um, he's got so much energy, we know that, and he could be that kind of box crashing midfielder in the style of a, a Deli Ali coming on to. Uh, the play late on. Um, I mean, with that in mind as well, you think Kai Havertz might be that for the same sort of reason. He's sort of a similar kind of build to Deli Ali and being quite tall. And we know that he's not the clinical striker that people maybe outside Chelsea maybe thought that he was this season. He's, I think he's underperformed his XG more than anyone in the, the Premier League. He's not the clinical striker. He's better, as we know from his time at Leverkusen, is arriving into into the box and onto the the play sort of late on. So I think it could be good news for for him as well to kind of have a bit of a revitalization and a bit of confidence. That's not to say he's played terribly, but he's just not a clinical goal scorer or number nine. I do find it interesting that you talked about Kane under Poch at Spurs, Michael, and some of the things, the dropping deep things, the the runners making good out to in runs from wide areas and and that being made possible by the movement of Kane dropping in. Some of that seems to fit quite nicely onto some of the things that Havertz does does well. Very clearly, as Mark says, he is not known to be or has proven to be a regular, consistent goal scorer or finisher. Um, but there are some aspects that sort of seem positive, some of them that don't. And and also, I must say, to, to Liam's point about, you know, Chelsea fans not thinking he's good enough or scores enough goals to be their number nine. I feel very strongly that 
any set of fans in the world stop caring about how many goals their number nine scores if their team are scoring goals that stuff gets left behind pretty quickly the fact that Havertz has been poor in front of goal this season is only exacerbated by the fact that Chelsea have scored 36 goals in 35 league games so I, I still think there's a chance Havertz could be something interesting under Poch in this Chelsea team I agree I actually really like Havertz um, probably hasn't progressed this season as much as I would have hoped uh, it was quite interesting. I've read um, Pochettino's book that came out about four or five years ago in uh, research for this piece. And he was talking a bit about Harry Kane in that. And this was, it was basically a diary of the 2016-17 season. And there was a bit where he was talking about how Kane doesn't want to be a number nine. He prefers being as a number 10. He, he's really having to convince him at this time that he's a number nine. He doesn't need a striker ahead of him, which is kind of what Havertz I guess, well, you know, he could have the same conversation with Havertz. I guess the difference is, Pochettino says later in the book that uh, he says, Harry Kane is mentally the best footballer in the world, which is quite high praise. And I don't know whether you would say the same about Havertz. There seems to be a, maybe there's a, a bit more of a personality on the pitch ready to come out, but it just some, seems a little bit tame to me. And maybe lacks a little bit of belief, which certainly isn't the case with Hurricane. Of course, Romelu Lukaku will be playing in the Champions League final for Inter. Liam, still a Chelsea player, could be at Chelsea next season, certainly compared to his performances in the World Cup, as was discussed in that post-match interview. The excellent one on, on CBS Sports with uh, Thierry Henry in particular. He looks sharper, he looks fitter. Is there a way in which Lukaku contributes to Chelsea next season? I think there should be. Um, I think if Chelsea's issues are around having... A high quality back to goal number nine um, that can be a focal point for these these creative forwards to to play off of to have a reliable goal scorer. He has scored goals, I think, fifteen or more um, in a league season at every single club he's been at at senior level, with the exception um, of Chelsea. So, in that regard, that's not necessarily um, a massive you know da damning of Chelsea, but in the sense that you have a solution that is that is fairly ready to go. Um, Sure, it might not be the exact sort of player that you want. I, I appreciate there's baggage there that Lukaku might say no. There's there's finances, the stuff involved as to why Inter, I presume, want him permanently but might not be able to afford him. Um, but also looking at the situation that the ownership has changed from from two years ago, the the coach has changed quite a few times. Um, a large portion of the squad has changed. I, I can't see why there isn't enough new fresh ground there for people to say, look, I appreciate stuff's happened in the past. You know, people weren't happy. Things have gone wrong, but. There's a good tactical fit there. He's not entirely dissimilar to, to Kane as a sort of style of number nine. I'm, I'm not trying to suggest that Pochettino should look to replicate um, what he's done previously, but I think you just want different sort of solutions in attack. I think Chelsea have a lot of a similar type player uh, and they have a lot of real sort of good talent and individual quality, but there's more than 11 really good players there, but sort of fitting them into a best 11, we're still sort of like, I'm not really sure how you really go about doing that um, in, in the best way. So broad question, Michael, now that Poch is in and they can look forward and, and leave this season behind them what's important this summer for Chelsea yeah getting rid of some of the players who don't want to be there and there's a lot of them and probably getting in a number nine I think I think and you're pretty much sorted to be honest so best thing for Poch would be to make the squad more manageable and dare I say more coherent yeah, I completely agree. I think, yeah, trimming trimming the squad, it's just absolutely needed. Um, there's enough there of the, the Pochettino profile of young, talented players. Um, get rid of a few of the 
the peripheral players or maybe the older players and a clinical goal scorer. To Liam's point, yes, they maybe have that technically in the, the form of Lukaku, but if not him, then then uh, someone else is a clinical striker. I think they should benefit from no Europe this season as well. Um, in the sense of having a reduced sort of workload and, and fewer games to play. I know that's a, a thing of comment that Potter made was that they're playing every three or four days, limits time on the training ground. I think regardless of who they get rid of or who they keep or who they buy, they need to work on largely getting a, a settled 11. We've seen how much success Arsenal have had through that this season. And I think having a really good plan, they can get you quite far in the league. I think it can quite easily push them up into the you know the top seven, top six. When you look at the individual quality they've got, um, I still don't know at this point in the season if they've played you know an unchanged 11. I don't think they have, at least there's a period in sort of Potter's tenure. And I think um, when Lampard started that they hadn't, which is just quite crazy sort of this deep into the season. Um, and they had injuries to manage within that as well. But... If someone asks you what is Chelsea's identity right now and under the previous managers, I think it's become very murky. Um, and, and that is just a real big thing that I think is needed to be done and just needs people to align on what they want the football to look like. I think a wider point is that next season should be better for physical conditioning and tactical training than we've seen for a while. Because, I mean, 2021, there was no off-season really because of the COVID situation. The season is almost fused into one. There was still a bit of a backlog by the end of that summer. They had uh, the Euros. And then this season, of course, has been the World Cup, which has caused various issues in terms of training, in terms of physical conditioning. So a lot of teams, for the first time in a while, will have a proper pre-season and then they will have a little bit of a gentler time, you know, throughout the season as well. So maybe we'll see some more interesting ideas. Uh, You've always been a big one for pointing out the benefits of having a season without Champions League football. I mean... European football, to be honest, in, in in a team sort of being able to lick its wounds and kind of reshape a little bit and, and build in slightly easier circumstances. So that's what's needed for, for Chelsea. Maurizio Pochettino will be their manager. And I dare say the next time we speak about them will be ahead of or after the beginning of the next season. And it'll be really fascinating to see how much of what we've spoken about today has come to pass or how much might still be uh, up in the air, how many question marks remain. But it's going to be fascinating to follow. Uh, been a really fun pod today. So thanks, Liam, Mark and Michael. Lots to discuss on the pitch with the Champions League semi-finals and in the dugout as well with Maurizio Pochettino joining Chelsea. Make sure that you subscribe to this podcast feed and that you are subbed to The Athletic as well. Head to theathletic.com forward slash tactics for the best sign-up offer and get yourself an annual subscription. We'll be back again next week. Thanks for listening. The Athletic.